Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, I'm talking with Dr. Joanna McMillan. Joanna is one of the country's most trusted health and nutrition experts. She is a PhD qualified nutrition scientist, an accredited practicing dietitian, adjunct senior research fellow with La Trobe University and fellow of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Joanna is an experienced TV presenter. She's a TEDx and international keynote speaker and the founder of Get Lean, an online lifestyle change program. She has authored eight books including her latest book, The Feel Good Family Food Plan, which we will talk about a little bit later on. That's quite an intro there, Joe. Thank you oh. so much for um, <laughs> taking time to chat to me today. Thanks for, thanks for having me on, Fiona. And yes, I apologise. It all sounds a bit of a mouthful, really, when you hear about yourself in an intro, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing um, bio that you've got. And I didn't actually realise that you've done a TED, TED Talk. Oh, I know. And I, look, I'd love you to talk about my TED Talk to people because I'm nearly, nearly, nearly getting close to my 1 million views, which I didn't expect when I did the TED Talk. They said if I got a few thousand, then I'd be doing well. So I think I'm somewhere around, uh, certainly over 800,000 now. So um, yeah, help me get to that 1 million and I'll be definitely. celebrating. Well, I didn't actually realize. So I'm going to definitely be checking that out straight after our podcast. So can you just tell us quickly, what was your TED Talk on? So it was called, the title was Eat for Real Change. Um, but if you just search TEDx and Dr. Joanna McMillan, you should find me. But yeah, so I tried to give a talk that was really about, you know, where are we going wrong? Why is there so much confusion over nutrition? Are we losing sight of the big picture? And what do we really need to be doing um, in order to, to get population-wide health issues improved? So I was really talking at that sort of population level. Because I do feel with nutrition, we often end up going down a rabbit hole and talking about very specific or arguing over the detail or, you know, getting involved in the nitty gritty of something that might be applicable to some people, but really it often means we lose sight of the big picture and what the, the key things are that we really need to change in the way that we eat. Absolutely. And well, funny you say that because that's exactly what I wanted to chat to you about today. <laughs> um, because, you know, really, as I think, as nutritionists and dietitians, I think we can get caught up in what I call a nutrition bubble. And for us, in a way, I think we know what healthy eating is and in a way can presume that everybody else knows. But mm. considering, you know, there's so many diets out there that are still being really heavily promoted and things like the keto diet, low carb, high fat diets, um, vegan diets, intermittent fasting is a really big thing at the moment. So, you know, mm. Is that healthy message or, you know, the healthy eating message, is it getting out there? Do people actually, do we think people actually know what healthy eating really is? No, I don't think they do, Fiona. I mean, I, I was involved in a survey, gosh, it was a couple of years ago now, where one of the questions that we asked them was, are you confused about what a healthy diet is? And something like off the top of my head, it was somewhere around 80% of people surveyed said, yeah, I'm now confused. And, you know, that's a pretty sad state of affairs because, you know, I know I've been in this game a long time, but even when I first, if I think back to what, there's certainly some messaging that has changed over the years, but when I think back to the key messaging from when I first trained as a dietitian to today, and that's over 20 years, and the key messaging hasn't really changed. Some of the influences on, you know, is it fat, is it carb, all that sort of things have changed, things have maneuvered, we've understood more, we're building on our nutrition knowledge all the time. But essentially, the message to just eat real food is still there. 
And so I think it's a sad thing that we have. We've, we've introduced so much confusion. In part, I feel it's because of the media and I work with the media. So, you know, we, mm. we, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship there. I understand and feel sympathy for journalists have to have headlines and they have to make things a little bit sensational. They have to get their hook to draw people in. But on the other hand, it can really mislead people. So we've got this kind of such a vast array of different nutrition sources and many of them coming from people who really shouldn't be talking about it. They're talking out of their scope of field uh, or with no qualifications whatsoever. Um, and then that is just leading to this increased confusion. And then the other problem that I feel with a lot of the diets you mentioned there, some of them you know, have some really good basis, at least for some people. And there's different reasons, of course, for following different kinds of diets. But ultimately, I feel, you know, people are looking for the quick fix. They're looking for the thing that is marketed and sold to them. And they're looking for something that um, is kind of takes the emphasis away from it being your fault. Here you go, do this, and you're going to get immediate results. And we've got to stop that sort of short term thinking. Absolutely. And I, I do think maybe people are still getting that message of healthy eating and what the latest diet fad is. They're getting that confused because I think a lot of people are trying these diets, maybe not their first, not for trying to get healthy. A lot of them are doing it as a quick weight loss solution as well. And there still seems yeah. to be this thing of, um, you know, carbs and weight gain, which we know isn't true, but it's, I think people still look at food as good food and bad food. And quite often it's in relation to their weight. And is it going to be something that's going to, you know, they're going to put weight yeah. on with. So I, I think, you know, healthy eating, um, I, I do think we still need to get that message out there of what that means um, and not sure. correlating that with size and shape. Yeah, for sure. I think we need to pull apart the, the idea that, you know, being skinny it equals being healthy. It, it's not, and being overweight means you're unhealthy. Then now, of course, there's, a, you know, being very overweight is a risk factor for lots of different sort of chronic diseases. So we know that that's not, not a, a necessarily good state to play. But we've got to realize that nutrition and good nutrition and optimal um, health comes in all shapes and sizes. So, you know, being skinny is not a sign of being healthy. In fact, it can mean quite the opposite, or you could be perfectly healthy. You could be a bit overweight and be very, much, much healthier than that person who is leaner. So we've got to stop evaluating health based on size or based on whether someone's overweight or not. That is just a very visible sign of whether, um, whether one, something might be out of whack in diet and lifestyle. Um, and we've got to also really help to understand, we've got to break down this sort of very simplistic view that if you're overweight, you're overeating, under-exercising, and you're probably a bit lazy and greedy. You know, that, that ingrained kind of thought process in lots of people is a really, really key problem. And it totally misunderstands the much, much more complex nature of our food supply and, and our genetics and what's happened over to epigenetics over generations. Um, you know, I know we're going to talk a bit about a microbiome and gut health and all of these things come into play. And, and it's a very, you know, how, what size you are is a very, very complex interaction of all of these different factors. So, you know, I think, I think we've really got to move health away. One of my other books was called Inner Health. One of my biggest problems I always have here, and I don't know if you find the same thing, what do you call things? The title I always find difficult. Yeah. And one of my favorite titles of one of my past books was Inner Health, Outer Beauty. And it was very unashamedly targeted at women. But the idea of it was health comes from the inside. You can't view it. And then, yes, you get this, you look healthy and you're more radiant. And I know you do a lot of stuff with skin. Your skin is certainly better when you eat well. But it's that idea we've got to come back to is that health comes from within. Absolutely. And, you know, the same goes for exercise. You know, I and I used to be guilty of it years ago when I was younger and not trained. And I thought mm. exercise was a way to, um, you know, it was more for weight management as opposed to the importance of health. And I think a lot of people probably view food in, in the same way. And a lot of these diets that are being so heavily mm. promoted where they may have certain merits for particular conditions are being in a way abused because people are using sure. them either in the wrong way or for the, for the wrong thing. So when it comes to something like intermittent fasting, I guess, which is a, a big thing at the moment, and I'm seeing a lot of people doing it or thinking it is the be-all and end-all. Yeah. 
there can be potential issues or could there be potential issues with that when it comes to gut health because you know some people are saying well it's actually really beneficial for your gut to do intermittent mm. fasting and then you could say well is it going to be starving those beneficial microbes so where do, where do you stand mm. on that intermittent fasting well, look, I think intermittent fasting is a definite option, right? So the, there is some good research behind, and what it might come down to is, is how you are doing the intermittent fasting. So actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head up with what the cons are. What, one of the things that does worry me and concern me, particularly with women, is that intermittent fasting just becomes an excuse or a, a sort of blanket cover for why you're not eating. So if you have any kind of history of eating disorders, or you just have a and let's face it, this is lots and lots of women, just have a poor relationship with food. You often see food as the enemy. You struggle with your body image. And that relates back to what you were just saying in terms of aesthetics being, you know, social media is driving and the media drives this kind of aesthetic view of what is beautiful, what is healthy. And so if you have that kind of relationship with food, my fear is, and it's a very real fear that's shown out in some of the research is that intermittent fasting may just exacerbate some of those thoughts. So suddenly, you know, you're going for lunch with friends and we've got that friend who says, oh, no, 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 this is my fast day. I'm not eating. Instead of recognizing, oh, this is an issue or, or having to say I'm dieting, which is no longer a kind of trendy thing to say, suddenly it's giving them that very excuse of, oh, well, but that's what everyone's doing. This is a healthy thing to do. So be very careful that you're not using intermittent fasting to, to and it's, it's blanket covering some deeper issues that may be quite deep rooted. But if we then look at the pros of, of intermittent fasting, a lot of people are just simply eating all of the time. And if you think about any system, it's not a good idea to be overloading your digestive system with continually having to work, continually having more food in there. And our bodies are built in such a way that we have onboard stores. So fat is almost limitless. Even if you're quite lean, you've got enough fat to last you for several weeks. And we have a more limited store of carbohydrate. But that's why we have the ability to, to create ketones from, from fat. That's a survival mechanism. <laughs> we'll come back, I think, to the keto diet in a little while. But um, that's a survival mechanism for us to be able to survive when, when food is not available. So therefore, we have a limited store of carbohydrates. So that tells us something. You know, we're supposed to be in a situation where sometimes we're taking in fuel. But we've also got to make sure that there are times where we're not taking in fuel and we're using what's been stored and that's on board. So that's the way I see intermittent fasting. And there's certainly some evidence that that is good for the gut microbiome. What is certainly not good for the microbiome is if you fast for too long. Mm. So, you know, we don't really know what the optimal um, regimen is for intermittent fasting. We've got the famous 5-2 made famous by Michael Mosley, of course. But there's also this time-restricted eating that actually, in my experience of talking to people, most people seem to find that easier, where you just extend your overnight fast. Now, that's not going to, you're not going to starve your microbes as long as you are still getting all those really good plant fibers and the variety of plant fibers into the meals that you do have. It's only going to become a problem if you're going, you know, suddenly fasting becomes for two or three days or something. Then suddenly, yes, you're, you're going to have an issue there. Yeah. And I guess, you know, your body will naturally want to go on a fast as well. We're, we're naturally designed to do that in times of sickness so that the body is then able yeah. to sort of go into autophagy and things like that. So to me, it seems like, again, there's a time and a place and it can be beneficial, but when taken or abused, as you said, um, and, and that is the problem with a, a lot of these mm -hmm. diets, and I have been to one of those lunches that you mentioned. <laughs> you know, Isn't it frustrating? I mean, you know, food should be a pleasurable, enjoyable part. And actually, you know, I'm, I've always talked about this, that the social and the cultural connections of food are really, you know, are in part what make us human. You know, and there's nothing worse than having someone to your house for dinner that then won't eat half the stuff or, you know, going to lunch and there's one person who won't eat. And, you know, all of that stuff just then becomes food, becomes less pleasurable and we lose those kind of social connections. So, you know, I always, always challenge people and I, sorry, I'm picking on women, but, you know, it is women often that this is the case, although we're seeing it more with men, you know, challenge your relationship with food. And really, if food is becoming the enemy instead of being something that is enjoyable and pleasurable, then really sort of challenge that relationship and think how you, you might be able to alter it to bring the joy back. 
Absolutely. You know, I, and I do see it a lot with women, but I, again, I, I do, I, there's several men that I, I know that have had or do struggle with food as well. So um, it, it is definitely an issue and probably more of an issue than we, well, than we realise. And I think trying to sort of move away yeah, it, it's trying to get that message out there of, of healthy eating. And even with the influences in social media and media, and it, it can really become an issue when people are seeing images of people in bikinis and in their yoga wear and, and people sort mm. of putting themselves selfies in mirrors of their abs. You know, for, for younger girls in particular, I, I do worry about what impact that is actually having on their on their mental health. So um, absolutely, the more we can get that healthy eating message out there, the better, I, I think, because it, it does affect all of us, I think, in, in some capacity. For sure. And I think the other thing to say about health eating in, in relation to intermittent fasting is that remember with intermittent fasting, it's not a replacement for healthy eating. So it doesn't mean, you know, I've had people think, oh, well, if I do two days of fasting, I can eat what I like for the rest of the week. You know, you still have to, you've actually got fewer meals there to get your nutrients in. So in a way, if you're going to fast, you have to, in fact, pay more attention to the nutritious nature of, of your other food. So, you know, don't forget whether you're doing time restricted or whether you do the 5-2, you've still got to think about the, the balance and the foods that you're including and ensuring you get the right diversity of foods and so on into those other meals. So to me, it's kind of an adjunct onto any other, other kind of um, healthy eating approach that you're taking. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, what about when it comes to, say, gut health on, on low-carb diets? Because there still does seem to be this issue with people and, and carbs and, you know, going on low carbs. And to be honest, even my husband, <laughs> just a couple of days ago, he went out and bought pasta and we've got so much pasta in the pantry now. And we, we're not massive pasta eaters. And then... I said, oh, well, um, I'm going to make a, a spaghetti bolognese and put extra veggies in. It's like, oh, I think I've eaten too much today. That's going to be too many carbs. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. what are you talking about? It's, it's, if you keep to the right portion control. And so yes. he has, you know, I'm a nutritionist, but even he's been brainwashed in the media about carbs and he associates still to this day carbs and weight gain. And, you know, we have to sit down and talk about yeah. it. Then he eats the carbs and he's like, I can't believe how much better my run was today after having some carbs. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, but these things can be really, these associations um, can be really, really hard to break. And, you know, what I see happening is that all the mistakes that we made in that whole era of low fat eating, we're now making with carbs. And we keep making this mistake of pointing our finger of blame at a nutrient that is in food instead of the foods themselves. Um, and the same is pretty much true of, of everything that you look at, really, whether it's sugar or refined starch or you blame saturated fat or you blame gluten or whatever it might be that you're blaming for your particular health issues or your weight issues. And instead of actually recognizing that it's, these, are, are, these are markers of the particular types of foods that you're eating. So, for example, you know, when the low-fat diet was originally recommended, um, there were no low-fat cookies or low-fat ice cream or low-fat this and that. You know, that those foods did not exist. And so the advice was intended to get people eating more fruits and vegetables and lean meats and so on and so on. Um, and yes, you know, pasta and, and brown rice and things were all in there. But the inadvertent response was for the food industry respond with all these highly refined foods that were full of really refined carbohydrates. And then that kind of led on, I'm sort of slightly oversimplifying the story in the, in the interest of time and illustration, but then we had the same thing happen. So then we blamed carbs. We said, well, well look, we've still got the issues. We've maybe even made it worse. It wasn't fat after all. Now let's blame the carbs. But what has happened is, of course, we've got all these refined carbs in there. And now we're blaming carbs. And now we're coming out of that going, oh, hang on a minute. We've, we've thrown that proverbial baby out with the bathwater. There's all this good stuff and legumes and whole grains. And, and what have we done? We've just cut out all the good carb-containing foods along with the bad. And so what we need to do at this point in time is stop doing that. Stop blaming. It's not sugar per se. It's, it's the foods that have too much added sugar that don't have enough of all the really good stuff that are problematic. The same is true of refined starch. So too much refined starch and in, forgive my language, but shitty modern ultra-processed yeah. foods yeah. Are, are the problem, not the carbs and not the fat and not the 
sat fat or whatever it might be, not the sugar, it's the overall balance. And, and I think that's really where everything I always talk about brings it back to what are the actual foods. And this is the way nutrition research has moved towards, it's got to be about the dietary pattern and about the foods instead of this focus on individual nutrients. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when we're looking at carbs, it's, it's you know, you've got the refined, you've got the, the beautiful plant-based foods and whole grains and legumes. So I, I think people mm. need to know exactly what, what carbs are as well. Because <laughs> there, yes. there seems yeah. to be um, people sort of lump carbs as in can't have carbs and I've got to go on low carb. And I still see the um, ketogenic diet being heavily promoted and um, you know this really concept of a high fat diet and low carb and then too much saturated fat in particular we know is not beneficial and not even beneficial no. for fat. Um, so what you know where did where did it get so detrimental for our gut health when we're when we're looking at low carbohydrate diets and high fat diets and I'm talking about you know high yeah. saturated fats here yeah, so what we know, we know that, let's bring it back to what you said there was, uh, was quite um, illuminating to people, I think, is that people need to understand what carbs are. And carbs include fibers. So yeah. fibers are mostly carbohydrates that we can't digest with our own enzymes, but our gut microbiome, so the, or the, the, the healthy little bugs that live down mostly in the colon, they break down those carbohydrates for us. And then we get particular benefits from that, that process. So if you go on a low, and I think one of the other problems is the definition of what is keto, what is low carb, what is moderate carb, because there are, you know, people use varying definitions of what they mean by low carb. So when pump, some people say, oh yeah, I'm on a low carb diet, um, actually what they mean is they've reduced their carbs. So when you quiz them, they might say, oh yeah, well, I am still having some whole grain bread. I am still having my muesli in the morning or I'm having some oats, you know, or, or I'm cutting my carbs at the evening meal. I'm just having my protein with some veggies at night or they have different regimes of this and then you've got the people who really go very low carb now if you do true keto in my experience very few people i've talked to who say they're doing keto forgive if you hear my dog barking he loves to have a little bark outside <laughs> um, if you're truly doing keto it is an extremely difficult diet to stay because it's a very low carb diet um, so you're talking less than 20 grams of carbs a day for most people to truly be on keto and you have to watch your protein intake. If you suddenly think, oh, well, I can just eat a steak instead and you let your protein intake come up, remember that some amino acids can be converted to glucose. So that kicks you out of, of ketosis. So that's why a true keto diet is actually keeping your protein the same as, and it's replacing carbs. With, so it's very high fat and very low carbs. And that means it's also very low fiber. So we know from the microbiome research that that's a disaster for your microbiome. So while I think the keto diet has some therapeutic uses, I know there's some stuff for more than 100 years, it's been used by clinical dietitians in hospital, mostly in children with, with chronic epilepsy that isn't responding to other treatments. But you talk to those dietitians and they say it's a nightmare to get these kids on this diet and to keep them on the diet. But certainly there's some evidence there. I'm aware of some research that's undergoing with some other brain disorders like chronic migraines and some other sorts of things. And perhaps there's a use in morbid obesity. But look, you know, there is no long-term um, evidence about any sort of benefit. And most people, and the trials don't go for very long because most people taking part in any of the trials find it so hard to stick to the diet that they fall off the wagon. So I think we really have to look at that. You know, when you look at, if, if you want to bring it back down to weight loss, um, the longest studies we've got for, you know, going for a year or longer they basically show that the diet that's most successful is the one that you can stick to. So as soon as we get to the, those more extreme diets, so few people can actually follow that kind of diet that, you know, that, that really it's, it's not, it's not going to be beneficial for anyone's long-term health. Yeah, absolutely. And again, what that does to the gut microbes as well. And um, I was reading something earlier and I can't remember the study now, but it, it was to do with um, weight gain um, and the, the change in the, the gut gut microbes but um yes that's a whole different story <laughs> and, but <laughs> well know, we certainly know that Fiona I mean we know that high fat particularly high saturated fat some fats I mean you know I do a lot of work in 
research on extra virgin yeah. olive oil, um, it does have some gut benefits and, and the particular polyphenols that are present in extra virgin olive oil seem to be beneficial for the, for the microbiome. But a high saturated fat diet is certainly not good um, for the microbiome. So all those people that are arguing, oh, we got it wrong with saturated fat, it's not mm. actually what the evidence shows. It may not be as strongly because it's a marker of some of the foods and it's particular foods. We can't judge a food based on its saturated fat content. But we certainly have that information there showing us it's not good for the microbiome. The changes that happen are not beneficial long term. And we also know that it's bad for the brain. It's not good for cognition. And when you look at any of the healthiest diets over time, so look at a true paleolithic diet or look at the Mediterranean diet or the Japanese diet or the Inuit diet or all Nordic diet, any of these diets have really been studied none of them are high in saturated fat. That's a really new phenomenon because it's the way that food processing and the way that we create our food, including the way that we grow meat, um, not so badly here in Australia, I have to say, uh, has led to a much higher saturated fat intake than we've ever had previously. Yeah, really interesting. And something I was looking at the other day was the, the different types of diets and how they influence the gut microbes. And mm. of course, our, our favorite Mediterranean diet came out tops for having the most diverse um, microbes. I think um, yeah. vegetarian was, was second. But um, of course, the, the really keto type diets came out worse for gut microbe, uh, microbe diversity. So we yeah. know that eating a diversity of plant foods is really key for the diversity of our, our gut microbes. And people are now beginning to realize that they need to include more plant foods in the, in the diet. But I still mm. think people get caught up with thinking or get caught up with the individual microbes. You know, what should I have? What's good? What's not so good? What are the bad microbes? Can you mm. talk yeah. about why it's actually sort of the diversity of those microbes that's so important? It is. Yeah, for so many years, and I still hear people talking about this, that, you know, oh, it's the balance of good and bad bacteria. Well, actually, that's not really correct. It's not the, re it's not the correct image of what's going on in there. Um, it's actually the overall functioning of your microbiome that is really, really important. And, and while there are some clear bad bugs, so the ones that are pathogen, pathogens that would give you gastro or, or have a very clear negative um, health outcome, most bugs are not. Um, I posted something on Instagram recently and it was something, the figure was something like 95% of bugs are not harmful and, are, and actually have the potential to be beneficial for us. So that's what to remember, that it's not really good and bad. What is bad is if one particular species or one group of types of, of bugs get to proliferate and get to dominate over everybody else, then what happens is you get, you get this imbalance between the different groups because different bugs do different things. So when you talk to microbiologists about the, uh, what is a healthy microbiome, and when I was working on the ABC Catalyst show, I got to interview people all over the world from different areas of science for their perspective on the microbiome. And while some of them got down into the nitty gritty about what does this particular bug do, and you know, there are some standouts that have really been researched um, quite well. The, those bugs, of course, are not in everybody. The, 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 the view that was most consistent amongst all of the experts that I interviewed were two things. One, the diversity of your microbiome is really important. So that's the number of different species that you have there. And secondly, what they call evenness. And that just means the evenness between groups. So it's kind of like a society, isn't it? You don't want one dominant group <laughs> lording up over everybody else and telling everyone else what to do and grabbing all the food and, and managing to dominate, proliferate, pushing out all the minorities. You want to have a nice even society where you've got nice groups of people all intermingling, everyone being respectful of each other and sharing the resources. That's kind of what it's like at a microbe level happening down in your colon. So that's the evenness. So in order to get that evenness, you want to ensure that there's all of those different fuel sources for the different bugs to be able to do their job. And that's a really nice way to think of it. And certainly the, the standout message is that diversity of plant foods leads to a diversity of gut bugs. And that's really what we want. Absolutely. And I, you know, leading on to talking about the diversity, I think that's a good intro then to talk about probiotics, because people are getting quite fixated. And I think now at the moment as well, with people sort of wanting to sort of look at immune system and all that kind of stuff, everyone's like, let's go and get probiotics. And so many people take probiotics daily. Mm. 
or they take the same probiotic. Um, we used to think, you know, a few years ago that, that probiotics were the thing to be taking every day and that they would repopulate or put back the good bacteria into the gut. But now, you know, research is constantly changing with the gut and we, we're finding now that that's not so much the case and that the probiotics mm. aren't necessarily repopulating back or colonizing back in the gut. They're more communicating whilst in transit. So although they may have beneficial actions, um, they're, they're not, it's not as simple as just eat what you like, particularly, mm. you know, highly refined processed foods and then just take a probiotic and it will be fine because it will put the good bacteria back. I, I think a lot of people don't realise that there's so many bacteria that can't even be manufactured or can't even survive outside of the, the gut. Um, and yeah. that, you know, what is the message that we need to be getting out there when it comes to probiotics? Because I think a lot of people may be relying on them and having this false sense of security. For sure. Well, you've explained that beautifully. That's exactly what a probiotic is doing. So when you look at the research behind probiotics, they are there. It's very mixed and it's quite controversial. Yeah. So I could pull out a number of different studies going here. You go, Fiona, look, these probiotics are fantastic. We've got really positive health um, results. And then you're going to pull out a whole lot of other studies that I could say, oh, whoops, hang on. But these studies didn't find anything. So I think we're probably in the very early days. If, if we talk again in another even five years, certainly in 10 years, I think we'll have become much more targeted with probiotics. So I don't think they're unimportant. Um, at the moment, all we can say about them are to use a clinically tested strain for the particular outcome you're looking for. So let's say you are going traveling. Um, one day we're going to get back to being able to do that, I hope. So if you're going traveling and you say, oh, I want to make sure I avoid traveler's diarrhea, there are particular strains of bacteria that have been shown clinically tested for that particular outcome. That would be the one to take. If you've got irritable bowel syndrome, there are specific probiotics that have been shown to have a clinical effect in patients with spe specific forms of, of IBS. So, but at the moment, really, when you look at probiotics, they are, they are bugs that have been able to be grown in the lab and then popped into a supplement. So the very early probiotics are all the bugs that are used to ferment milk because they are able to be grown. And as you pointed out, most of the bugs that are up inside your colon are anaerobic bugs. They, they grow without air. So you can't just grow them easily on a petri dish in the lab and stick them into a probiotic. Not that it's that simple. Forgive, forgive me for the people who make probiotics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, so it's very, very complex. And until recently, you know, we're, we're now in a position where we can actually get a good um, measurement of the microbiome. Um, until recently, that really wasn't able to be done. So we didn't know about all of the different bugs and we didn't have a good picture of exactly what's, what's going on inside there. So I think we're really kind of, it's a, it's a little bit, it's, it's very crude. Maybe that's the best mm. word to use when it comes to probiotics. And it certainly can't replace a healthy diet. So as you said, what we certainly, a probiotic goes straight through you. It doesn't colonize. Because if you imagine, it's, they're all quite stressed. They've been traveling all the way through the gut. By the time they reach the colon, there's already trillions of bugs there who are taking up all the space. They need attachment sites. So it's a busy little environment down there. So those small number of bugs, even though it looks like a lot on the container, is, it's a minuscule. It's a drop in the ocean when it gets down to the colon. So they do act as signaling molecules. They can have effects, but they can't get, they're kind of stressed by the time they get down there. They can't find space and colonize and start to proliferate. So when you stop taking the probiotic, you tend to stop getting that particular effect. What is much more important are prebiotics. And that's what we've already been talking about really with fibers, but there are specific types of not all fibers are the same. Um, and that's why you need that diversity of fibers. So the prebiotics are those ones that literally are the fuel, um, fueling your microbiome and ensuring you get that really nice response and you get, you get the compounds produced by that fermentation, which then have the, ha have the beneficial effects. And I think, you know, let's talk a bit more about um, max and, and prebiotics because I, I don't feel like these really do get talked about or definitely don't get eaten enough. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I think probiotics, while they have got their place for sure, I do think people rely on them, people that maybe don't know which ones they should be taking and just pop any old probiotic. Um, yes, and they may I not, totally agree. They may not realise the importance of 
prebiotics or and I think also in the media we promote some more unusual prebiotics so people will think well how on earth am I going to get Jerusalem artichokes and um, <laughs> yes. in, in my diet and so they may not realize that they're in a lot of other foods as well. Can you talk us through a little bit more about um, prebiotics and what what hmm. foods we can get them from and, and what they're really doing? Well, maybe a really good message um, to your listeners is just to remember, there is no food that is absolutely essential in the human diet. Um, in the same way that no bug is absolutely essential in your microbiome, you may have a particular bug that... Um, I don't have, but those two bugs that we have are both doing the same job. So the same is true of the foods that we eat. So we need sources of vitamin C every day, for example. You may get yours from eating some kiwi fruit. I may get mine from eating you know, an orange and then I had some red capsicum in my salad at night and so on. So there is no one food that you have to have. So when people talk about superfoods, often we get, and I do too, I talk about superfoods. It's a nice term. And foods that kind of stand out because they're particularly high in a nutrient are really what we end up calling a superfood. But you don't have to have all of those superfoods in your diet. Diet. So when it comes to prebiotics, you know, the foods that are down in your local grocer, your local supermarket, or in the nice box of, of, of um, fruit and veggies and whole grains and so on that you get delivered, they are they're what you can have. So, you know, if you're looking at a whole grain, I might have my rolled oats being a Scot, and you might have, you know, some lovely bulgur into your salad. There are different types of things, and all of these things will contain prebiotics. What is really important are, the, are, are really essentially four groups of plant foods. So we've got our um, whole grains, and I think we've totally underestimated the power of whole grains. I did a research totally. review last year. Totally. I couldn't agree with you more. And I just saw a few things flying around on social media this morning about um, grains are bad for you and causing mm. cause inflammation. And I think the message of the importance of whole grains isn't getting out there. And I also know, you know, some of those... Um, uh, stool sample tests when they they come back the the key food that a lot of people even qualified nutritionists are not getting enough of are the whole grains they have and that brings us back to you know we've kind of come full circle to going it's the fear of carbs so people have been told these foods are fattening and so they've cut them out and actually you know what i pulled out the research was that research is so strong for whole grains it's actually stronger for whole grains than it is for vegetables yeah. um and it's powerful. And the reason is, one, the prebiotics that are there. Secondly, they have insoluble fibers, which are really important for making sure that that fermentation of your microbiome happens all the way through the colon. It sort of carries some of those other fibers through. And the last point that people don't realize about whole grains are they're really high in antioxidants. So we think antioxidants are just about fruits and vegetables. Well, actually, whole grains have a very complementary range that complements those in vegetables. So it seems to be a very powerful um, connection. And if there's one thing actually that's positive about this, one thing, there's lots of things positive about the plant food trend, maybe that's what's going to help people to get over their fear of carbs. Because you can't go, oh, I'm going to be vegan and I'm going to be low carb and I'm being plant, but you know, those things don't all align you're gonna to have to start <laughs> I'm sure you end up with nothing left to eat <laughs> surviving on blueberries you know I mean I love blueberries but not as your only food <laughs> yeah absolutely um but no I couldn't agree more and about whole grains and I, I did a podcast with um whole grains and legumes council actually um just to get across some of those myths that are out there about uh, about grains in general. And of course, if you're eating the really processed, high refined grain, grains, not so beneficial, but getting, mm. getting the whole grains in, I just... For sure. And then the, well, that, that reminds me of my, I was going to say the four groups for plants. Yep. So it was, it's whole grains. The second one is legumes and then fruits and vegetables and then nuts and seeds. And so legumes, I think really are the other group of foods that we've forgotten about. Um, and and not and we certainly know that most Aussies are, are not eating nearly enough um, legumes, and so perhaps also this sort of interest in eating for your microbiome because they're such they they really are. So forget about Jerusalem artichokes. If you eat you know canned beans that are probably in all our cupboards with our stocking up for isolation, um, beans are just fantastic to make the meat go further. If you're still eating some meat, and if you're a vegetarian, of course they're 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 you know I would say pretty essential in your diet. 
Absolutely. And the nuts and the, the seeds as well, so important. And we're not eating enough nuts either, I think the research said, which surprised me. We're not. Absolutely love them. Yeah. I'm definitely getting enough nuts. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it something like 7%, only 7% of Aussies were getting, getting enough? I think the thing with nuts are that people forget about eating them every day. So yeah. perhaps on the weekend they think about it. Or, and, and there's still that stigma because we've still got... I mean, these poor people who have got a hangover from the low fat era and now they've got a hangover from the low carb era and it's sort of yeah. gutting out so many, it's just leading to food stress. But yeah, yeah I think the nuts issue is people get worried about the kilojoules and they get yeah. worried about the fat. Um, I don't know about you, but lots of people always, that's what they always ask me. Well, I'm an, but I, if I open the bag of cashews, I can't stop eating them. I'm not eating too many. Um, and the evidence is really very clear on that, that in fact... Um, having more of these good fats, like from nuts and seeds, like from avocado, and of course my my extra virgin olive oil that I bang on about, forgive me. Um, but all of those things actually help you to eat less of the rubbish, and they fill you up more, and they give you those benefits. Probably part of the mechanism is via the microbiome too, and it really helps you to to cut down overall. So so don't panic about the kilojoules, and certainly not the fat that are present in these foods. Just to clarify, we're not talking about the chocolate-coated nuts either here. We're no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. And they are tasty, I will confess. But, you know, <laughs> hey, you know what I do, actually, is sometimes when I feel like that little bit of chocolate get me through the afternoon at my desk, I get a little ramekin and I fill it with my raw nuts, um, not chocolate-coated. And so I put some fresh berries in there and then I just have a few little, I cut them up small, little squares, so I get sort of little dots of dark chocolate. Then you can have your kind of, combination of nuts and fruit and dark chocolate is yeah, awesome absolutely. anyway my little my little snack tip yeah it's delicious i love it too and sometimes i put cacao nibs in as well they're, they're a bit bitter and they're quite crunchy i like that but um otherwise yeah. chocolate. and dark chocolate's good for you you know the really good dark chocolate that's that's got your polyphenols yeah. in there as well which we know are good for the gut microbes so um absolutely it's just bringing out that education, isn't it, really? And people really understanding the importance of gut health and how important it is for our general health and well-being. Because sometimes if people can't see things, they don't realise the importance of it quite often until it's it's too late. Um, yeah. And so I think understanding the foods for gut health are going to lead to um, supporting our general health and well-being is so important. I think there's so much news. We're probably overloaded with um, info about COVID-19 at the moment. But mm. saying that, um, it does seem that the shelves are being cleared of vitamin C and echinacea and zinc supplements. And, um, you know, mm. some of the supplement manufacturers are even saying, you know, they're running out of stock and they need to... Um, people have, you know have bought, bought up and we're popping pills and people are sort of contacting me and saying, what should I be, be taking? And I, I think it's important to understand that, um, you know, no supplement, one, is going to protect us from catching a virus and, and two, really looking at what we can do to support our immune system um, and our gut health because we know that the the gut and the immune system work so closely together can you talk to us a little bit more about that and how the gut and the immune system work yeah. together yeah for sure so in terms of i mean the, the first thing to say about the supplement issue is that just remember the word supplement really tells you you know it is supplemental to a diet it cannot replace if you're not eating well no amount of taking any kind of supplement is going to help you whether we're talking about the common cold or flu or or COVID-19, we're, we're in the early days, of course, of that. But um, just out of interest, I, I have pulled out some papers from the Chinese researchers over there at the front line where, where, where COVID-19 started. And they are looking at nutritional status of patients and, and starting to use that as, is that one of the predictors as to how well they do and how well they recover and so on. So there's no doubt that nutrition is involved and they are starting to look at some particular compounds that are present in whole foods. Um, and so, so my, what I would suggest to your listeners is be very, very careful not to think it looks a supplement looks very convincing and you know they're marketed in such a way that it can make you think that you know the effect is much much stronger than is real so remember 
that while we have certain nutrients we need for optimal immune function, I never say boost immune function because you don't necessarily want your immune system to be boosted. You want it to be working in balance. Um, so just supporting your immune system with good nutrition is how to think of it. So yes, certain nutrients, including vitamin C and including zinc and some of these things that we see in popular um, immune support supplements, um, yes, they are required. But if you're getting enough, having even more is not going to give you an enhanced immune response. And in fact, sometimes you can, you can actually be doing more harm than good by taking too much of particular things, especially things like minerals. So that's, that's just a word of warning about the supplements. And at the moment, there is no supplement that has been uh, shown to, to be helpful in this. And as you say, it, nothing is, even good nutrition is not going to stop you catching this virus. What it certainly might do is help you to be able to um, get through having the virus and, and through your recovery. Um, if we just compare it to other kinds of infections. Now, how the microbiome is involved in that is that when you're eating really well and you've got all those prebiotics that we've been talking about and the good, good other fibers, um, then the, the compounds that your microbiome produces, about 70% of your immune system is uh, the cells and so on are all in the gut. And that's because the gut is such an immediate face to the outside world. And it's the, it's the barrier between the foods and things that are coming in. So along with foods can come potential pathogens and other bugs and so on. So there's a communication via these compounds that the microbiome produce and sometimes via the bugs themselves. They signal to immune cells and they turn on particular immune functions or enhance particular immune functions. So it's kind of like this, I like to think of it as a kind of chatter with the immune response. And it's modulating your immune response all of the time, helping your immune system to recognize pathogens, helping it to modulate an appropriate response to increase or decrease inflammation as, as required. So we know that there's that intimate involvement. Now, of course, there's that immediate effect within the gut. So how that relates to respiratory infections um, is a little more complex because, of course, bugs coming into your respiratory system are, not, are not, um, not coming into contact with your gut microbiome, but the signaling molecules are. So signaling molecules that come up into the bloodstream um, can be distributed around the rest of the body. So we certainly know that there is this relationship and people with a strong microbiome seem to have a better ability to fight respiratory infections to, to reduce the severity of the infection and certainly to be able to recover. So whether or not that proves to be the case with COVID-19, we don't know until further work is done, but we certainly know that's the case with things like other lung infections, influenza and, and, and the common cold. Yeah, and it, it makes sense as well, doesn't it, that um, you know, really taking care of the gut and getting those good gut healthy foods in is, is, can yeah. only be beneficial. It, it can only be beneficial um it just still surprises me where people are running out and taking supplements but they're still you know forgetting about their diet yeah <laughs> yes. some of the things i saw in those supermarket trolleys <laughs> would make oh. a hell. but saying that <laughs> you know, i do also understand when people are stressed it can lead to comfort eating and, and stress eating and i think it's not about beating yourself up because we have to live um, it's about knowing what to do to add into the diet rather than taking everything away, start by increasing those good foods. Um, and then as yeah. you mentioned earlier, the overeating or, or the cravings even for those junk type foods may help to mm. diminish. And I do feel that when you eat healthier, you feel healthier. It helps your self-esteem. It helps your mental health everything is so interconnected that then you want to start eating better because you feel better and same sure. goes, the same goes for unhealthy eating as well when we start sort of getting into that downward spiral it can be that we just keep eating the bad food and then feel bad and get into that that terrible cycle so it's not about shaming or making anyone feel bad at all it's just about trying to help people know what to up in their diet and what to include saying that however though joe when when we're looking at sort of these foods that are highly processed or mm. in the word junk food how much uh, we know that they're not good for our health and it does come down to the amount of course that we're eating the odd tim tam now and again really isn't going to do any harm and it's coming up for easter so there's people going to be eating easter eggs and hot cross buns and it's all in balance and moderation but for somebody yeah. that is eating a, 
a highly processed food diet, how much of an issue do you think that food additives and all these chemical pesticides are when it comes to influencing the microbes in the gut? Well, we're, we're, that is a growing area of research and more is coming out all of the time. So I certainly think, what we certainly know is that, that um, if you have a high junk food diet, um, it's not necessarily fueling, that's not the food necessarily fueling people. I've heard people say, oh, well, if you have loads of extra sugar, that's fueling these bad bugs growing down in your colon. Well, actually, no, because most of the sugar, pretty much all of it, sugar is very easy. It's already been partially digested for us, basically. It's very easy to absorb, and it's absorbed from the small intestine. So that sugar is not making it down to, down to the colon. But what is happening by eating a lot of that highly processed junk food, most of that is digested very high up in the gastrointestinal tract. It's very easy to break down and absorb. That's why we get this rush of sugars up into the bloodstream and fat flooding the system and so on. And, and what that's doing then is that there's nothing left to fuel the microbes down in the colon. We don't have enough fiber. There aren't the polyphenols they need and so on. And what then happens is the microbes are munching away far too much on the mucus lining, for example, of, of, the, of the gut, and that impairs the gut barrier wall. Um, we get certainly some excess fat. If you're eating a very high fat diet, you can't absorb all that fat, and some of it's going straight through. Same thing if you're eating way too much protein, some of that is going to make it through into the colon. So if you're downing protein shakes left, right, and center, you can, you're using some of that protein. We know that there's detrimental compounds produced by the microbes in relation to too much fermentation of fat and protein going on, particularly protein. So those are the kinds of things that can be happening um, and, and impacting them. And we also know that the, the gut microbes that are, that are thriving in that environment love it of course, because they're then dominating and doing well against some of the other gut, the fiber eater, I like to call them the fiber munchers. And then what happens is the, the signaling molecules that are being produced from those, those bugs are going to the brain and potentially, and this is this idea of, of your gut microbiome influencing your food choices. So those compounds are going to the brain, influencing your brain's decisions then in terms of food choices. So there's just, you just use the term a vicious cycle and that, that couldn't apply more here that the more junk food you're eating, the less you're getting of the good stuff, you're influencing that balance or that evenness of your microbiome, you're getting this signaling pathway via the brain to encourage you to keep eating that, made even worse by the fact that lots of these foods are scientifically designed to stimulate the reward pathways in your brain, to stimulate the release of sort of feel-good hormones like dopamine and so on in your brain so that you go, oh, in the initial phase, eating that food makes me feel good. And so then for, you're, you're therefore reinforcing and re-encouraged to, to keep eating that kind of diet. So the whole thing kind of gets worse. If you can break out of that cycle and keep those foods to, of course, you can enjoy a little of what you fancy any time. But if you're predominantly eating a really healthy diet, then you'll find it easier to, to resist all of that other stuff. So that's kind of the key message, I think, is to try and break yourself out of that cycle if that's where you are and to really emphasize eating the good stuff and you'll find it easier over time to keep that up. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. Now, you've just released a fabulous brand new book called The Feel Good Family Food Plan. And I actually have mm. a copy, um, <laughs> which um, I think it's, an absolutely wonderful book, Joe, because you've made it so easy for busy people to be able to cook beautiful, delicious food, um, what I would call everyday food, but it's very yeah. nutritious food. And that's what I love about it because I think quite often there seems to be this connotation that healthy food isn't nice food and when we say oh this mm. is healthy food people go oh, i don't want the healthy food i want the unhealthy food so what you've done i think is brilliant because you've got a whole recipe book of delicious food but it's also very healthy food but you may not know it's healthy if that makes sense <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i know it's look at it's um it's funny, isn't it? It's, I, I spoke at an award ceremony many years ago when I won an award at this, this event by the food industry, and it was mostly chefs that were at this event. And there was this one little table of nutritionists and dietitians. 
And I, when I got up to accept my award, I said, you know, for too many years now, we've got all the chefs having all the fun with food and the nutritionists and dietitians are down at the other end of the spectrum with people's perception being that, oh, that food's going to be really dull and boring. This is high time we met in the middle. And, and that's really what I've tried to, and the emphasis, the, the feel good is really important in the title because it is about bringing that joy, joy back into food. Um, I have a section in there actually on helping you and your kids to have a better relationship with food yeah. and with your own body. And really bringing back the family meal or, you know, if you don't have kids with, you know, just eating with your partner, eating with your friends, eating with your parents, bringing back that sort of joy of, of a communal sitting around a table enjoying food. And that's really what we very much tried to achieve. I, I pulled in a friend of mine, Mel Clark, who's, who's just one of the best home cooks I know. She's a trained caterer, but she's also a mum. We're both mums of teenage boys. Um, and so her food is doable. And that was, that was really my, my key when we, we initially talked about the spectrum of recipes that we wanted to, to have. And I said, it has to be doable, has to be familiar food, not using weird and wacky ingredients that you, know, you have to look up on the internet how to, what they even are. Um, it has to be budget friendly. Most of the recipes are really fast. There's the odd recipe that takes a wee bit more time that you might want to save for the weekend. Um, or at the moment, more of us are cook we're all cooking at home. So, so um, <laughs> give it, give some of those a shot. But most of them are really fast, quick, easy. The kinds of things that we both feed our families at home, and and that was really the goal of the book. So I, I hope we've managed to achieve that. I I think it's brilliant, and I'm I'm a throw it all together easy type cook. I very rarely follow recipes because they usually are too fussy or weird ingredients and there's always something that you don't have. But yeah. I, I really think that you've done an incredible job. The recipes are super simple. They're delicious looking um, and they're so vibrant and colourful as well, which just make yeah. you to eat them. And I, I think you've done a tremendous job. And so many mums say to me, you know, what, what can I cook? And um, yeah. I think get get frustrated because they don't know what to feed the family and sometimes they need that bit of inspiration that's why some of these at home delivery services where they just give you the individual ingredients do so well which I've never got my head around because to me it seems a very expensive way of eating and preparing food having something like this that's economical delicious I, I take my hat off to you you've done an incredible job so congratulations Thank you, Fiona. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, I hope. And, and the other thing I've tried to do with the book is actually to answer some of those nutrition questions. You know, my kids are teens now and I felt like there was this gap in information for people from, you know, you get lots of information when your kids are really small, but then there's this big gap. And, you know, particularly that sort of from age 10 onwards. So I've tried to answer those questions like, you know, food around sport and what do you do when your teenager tells you they want to be vegetarian? What do you have to think about? And um, how do you deal with everybody eating different sorts of foods and how do we bring it back? So I hope there's lots of good nutrition tips there. And if it makes a real difference, the, the way that people can eat. And look, you know, we all, including me, need some inspiration. We can all get stuck in a rut of what we cook at home. So, yes, yeah, so I really hope it does help people to broaden their expanse and, and get that variety of plant foods that we've been talking about today. Yeah, it, it's a great opportunity to really try new foods and new recipes and um, the Feel Good Family Food Plan really is your everything you need to feed your family well every day and um, I do encourage people to go out and get the book well they probably can't go out at the moment I think they can get it delivered the good news is most bookshops I've, I had an email from my publicist actually saying the bookshops are all doing home deliveries so you can have yes. it delivered <laughs> don't go out and or, Hashtag order, still. On, yeah. order <laughs> online um, and you know I think a lot of people are at home wanting things to do and baking you know the amount of people I'm seeing baking at the moment on social media you've got some beautiful <laughs> yeah baking inspiration ideas in there as well so um and get involved with the family as well cook together and and make it an activity and keep them out of mischief or boredom that's For another sure. yeah a great thing teach teach them cooking so um, idea. That's available on booktopia and places like that too isn't it it is for sure yeah so booktopia have it and you can get an ebook version if you prefer the digital version um and then all good bookstores of are, are and and the you know even your little bookstore down the corner most of those are now doing home delivery with the situation we all find ourselves in at the moment so um yes support whichever bookstore you normally use yeah fantastic and 
Is there anything else that you're up to at the moment? Any exciting plans? I mean, you're probably at home at the moment. <laughs> well, I am at home. Yeah, like most people, we're all sort of trying to, to um, uh, get used to this new environment. Try not to fall out with my husband because we're, you know, both stuck at home working from mm. home. We have a party for two, just the two of us on Saturday night. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I'm doing lots of cooking and lots of, um, you know, keeping keeping us all occupied. The kids are online doing school. So, But I've got some good projects for this year. Um, um, I've, you know, I've lost a lot of my speaking work, of course, but I'm sort of trying to ramp up what we can do online. So yes, I've got a project about to, to come your way, which is all about eggs and vitamin D and eggs. So that will be the next one. I've got some more stuff coming up with extra virgin olive oil this year. Um, and so yeah, watch this space. I'll, I'll, um, I would love people to follow me on social and then you'll see what I'm up to from, from there. And talking of, of social, if people do want to contact you um, or go to your website can you just let everybody know your instagram and your website as well yes thank you yeah the website is just dr joanna spelled drjoanna.com.au and my my instagram handle and my professional facebook page are both just at dr joanna mcmillan fantastic and um i'm following along and um can't wait to see what else likewise at the end of the year. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for chatting, us, chatting to us today. You're a wealth of information, um, always on top of all the latest research, and we really appreciate you taking the time out this afternoon. Thanks, Fiona, and stay safe, everyone. Happy cooking at home.